Jesus in Matthew 24 regarding the signs of his coming again. And I just want to remind you of those verses that are not in your notes per se. I just referenced them. But if you look on the screen, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. During the course of the message, we read from Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, these words, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Life was so bad. The culture was so bad. God was grieved that he even made man in the first place. Even though he knew all of this was going to happen, it hit him with an impact that it said that he regretted it. He, one King James says he repented it of making man. He said, I'm going to blot out man whom I'm created from the face of the earth. God was saying, this sin has come to the point that my righteousness demands that judgment take place. And the stage had been set for the flood that would wash the planet. God saw the culture as lost beyond redemption. How did the culture see itself? It says they were eating and drinking and marrying. Life was going on. They were thinking, life is good. We have everything we need. Oh, there's a little bit of sexual immorality and there's some violence going on, but we've got food on the table. We've got everything we need. And they continued to ignore God. God said it has to stop. It has to stop. Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. Just think about the world today. Well, that was last week's message. Let's talk about today. The story of Noah is of extreme importance. At first glance, it would seem the main topic is judgment. It would seem the focal point of the story is the flood that washes everything away and kills all the ungodly people. But what I want you to see is the story of Noah is all about salvation. The story of Noah is all about God's plan of salvation. Though the culture was so vile that the heart of God was grieved to the point of wiping humanity off the face of the earth, God in his love and his grace was at work to bring salvation to the situation. He was at work to redeem what had been lost. And he chose to use a man to facilitate his plan of redemption. So beginning in verse 9 today of chapter 6, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, 
blameless in his generation, Noah walked with God. A couple of weeks ago, we read the genealogy of Adam's son, Seth, starting with Enosh and, and going down the list that included Enoch, who walked with God and was no more, and included Methuselah. By the way, Methuselah's name means when he is gone, it will come. When he is gone, it will come. And he lived 969 years. Methuselah had a son named Lamech, who fathered a boy named Noah. Noah means comfort or rest. Lamech, when he named his son Noah, he said, I'm believing that somehow the birth of this son is going to bring relief from our work and painful toil of our hands. You see, the generations preceding Noah were part of that godly line of Seth. Noah had been exposed to what a life of faith looks like. And by the grace of God, Noah became the man that he was, a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. In the midst of a generation that had totally walked away from God, Noah continued to be a righteous man, blameless, though it appears he was doing it all alone. How was Noah able to go against the tide of the culture? How was he able to maintain a lifestyle that God called righteous and the people could not find anything to blame him at? They couldn't point their finger at him and call him a fraud. Look back at verse 8. Noah found favor. And remember we said that word favor is the word in Hebrew, grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, I realize most often it is preached. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord because he was righteous and blameless. But I want to suggest to you that's probably upside down, backwards. That's not the way it took place. Because Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, he was able to live by grace and become righteous man and blameless in his culture. When God revealed to Noah grace, now Noah lived out the proof that he had received that grace. Think about the words of Jesus to the disciples in John 15 and on, during the Last Supper. In verse 16, he said, You did not choose me, I chose you. Now, I know that oftentimes we say, at X point in time, I found Jesus. But that's really not the way it happened. Jesus found you. You see, John 6, says this, No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to me. This is in the context, Jesus fed the 5,000 the day before. They come the next day, they're looking for him. They want another free lunch. They tell them there's no more free lunch. You've got to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. In other words, you've got to believe in me. But he makes this statement. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, 
For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Noah found favor. He found grace. He embraced that grace. And he began to live in the context of that grace. The man who wrote those verses right there that we just read, he was a man who had spent his adult life doing good works. He said about himself, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisee. In matters of the law, I was blameless. Or so he thought. But in Acts chapter 9, he's Saul of Tarsus, breathing threats and murder. That's what the scripture breathing threats and murder against the people of the way, the followers of Jesus Christ. And he's on the road to Damascus with authority that has been given to him by the chief priests and scribes to arrest Christians, they weren't called Christians yet, they were called people of the way, and to bind them and take them back to Jerusalem for punishment. But Jesus stopped him in his tracks. Was Saul of Tarsus looking for Jesus? He was looking to stomp out the name of Jesus and everybody who believed in the name of Jesus. He thought Jesus was a, a, a fraud. But he had an encounter with Jesus and God bestowed upon him grace and he grabbed onto that grace and he was converted and became the apostle to the Gentiles, wrote 13 books in the New Testament because... Saul of Tarsus found grace in the eyes of the Lord. I'm on my way to heaven today because I found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Amen. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. I believe the story of Noah is very significant in understanding God's grace and salvation. Did you know that Noah is mentioned about 50 times in the Bible in a total of nine different books. You thought he was just in chapter 6 and 7 and 8 of Genesis. His story merits careful look and consideration. Noah was the kind of man you and I should be and can be as we live out our faith today. So point number one, Noah was a man who believed and walked with God. Noah was a man who believed and walked with God. He was a righteous man. That word righteous that we read in verse 9, that's the first time we see that word in the Bible, uh, at least the way it's published with Genesis being the first book. Noah's righteousness is something that was spoken of by other writers in the Bible. Remember, this is God-breathed, God-inspired, we believe it to be the infallible word of God. While the writers had no clue what they were writing would be part of the Bible, God did. God moved on the heart, moved on the hearts of men who put the canon of scripture together, and we have today what we call the word of God. Ezekiel 
spoke of the righteousness of Noah. The writer of Hebrews did as well, and so did the apostle Peter. Letter A under Roman number one is this, Noah was a righteous man because he believed God. He was a righteous man because he believed God. His righteousness did not come to him because of his good works. His good works came because of his righteousness. I hope you followed me all the way through that. And that righteousness was the gift of God's grace to him because he believed God. He put his faith in God. The same thing is said of Abraham. In Genesis 15, 6, And he, Abraham, believed the Lord, and he counted it, God counted it to him as righteousness. He believed the Lord. Leave Ur the Chaldees, go to the land I will show you, and I'm going to make of you a great nation. He had no children, but he thought I'm going to make you the father. And Abraham believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. We read it last week from Hebrews chapter 11, but I want to read it again in the Bible's Hall of Faith. Hebrews 11:7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God, concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Righteousness comes by faith. The doctrine of imputed righteousness began in the Old Testament. Imputed righteousness, really, pastor, what what that mean? That means I have received it vicariously. In other words, I did not earn it. Someone else did and gave it to me. Jesus Christ was the propitiation. He paid the total price for our sins. And today, as we look, you know, Noah was looking forward to that day. We look backwards to that day. Our righteousness is the result of our faith in Jesus. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The Roman Catholic priest Martin Luther could not get away from that particular verse written there and is written in the book of Habakkuk. And because of that, we had the Reformation, we had Protestant church uh, uh, birth because the righteous shall live by faith. Chapter 3 of Romans says this, verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Chapter 5, verse 17 of Romans says, For if, because of one man's trespass, Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. 
verse 19 says, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, God, he made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. We used to sing a chorus. I think it was written in the 80s, I think. I'm covered over with the robe of righteousness that Jesus gives to me, gives to me. I'm covered over with the robe of righteousness that Jesus lives in me. He lives in me. And one of the lines says, and when he looks at me, he sees not what I used to be, but he sees Jesus. Our righteousness is God's gift to us by grace through faith. Righteousness describes Noah's standing before God. Blameless describes his conduct before people. Righteousness describes Noah's standing before God. Blameless describes his conduct before people. We are justified the moment we ask Jesus Christ to forgive us of our sins. We are in right standing with God. But then there's this process of sanctification, living out my salvation, living it out. Noah's a righteous man, blameless in his generation. That's not to say he was absolutely perfect and never sinned. There's only one person who ever lived without sin, and that was Jesus. But it, that word blameless can be translated whole, without blemish or spot, integrity, integrity. To be blameless in his generation means this. He could have run for public office, and the other party could not have found any mud to throw to the media to discredit him from being in office. He was blameless. He was a man who kept his word. He was a man that lived in the grace and the righteousness that God gave to him. He was a man who lived in reverent fear of God, the kind of fear that says, God loves me, God has graced my life, and I do not want to do anything to displease the God who loves me. And we know him to be the Father in heaven who loves us with a perfect love. Look at the words of the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi regarding living a life that is blameless in our generation. Verse 12 of chapter 2. This is after he talks about, have the mind of Christ, who being equal with God, who God exalted him, gave him a name above every name. Therefore, because Christ has died and given a name, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation 
among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. That you might live without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Paul talked about the Roman culture that he was living in. I don't think I have to prove to you, do I, that we live in a twisted, crooked generation where things that men say are true are so insane, you know it's coming from the pit of hell that they have totally deceived. In the midst of that, hold fast to the word of life. Hold fast to the word of life. Since by faith through grace we're right before God, we ought to live right before men. And everybody said? Faith without works is? So you have faith. James said, show me your faith by your works. Again, verse 9 said, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. That was said of his great-grandfather, Enoch walked with God. Now, there's a whole lot of story between Enoch and Noah that we don't have the details, and I can't wait to get to heaven and check out the DVD. I mean, we'll be there forever. So just to watch all of histories that unfolded. Perhaps Noah walked with God because that's what Enoch taught Methuselah to do and Methuselah taught Lamech. Lamech did the same for his son. And he walked with God. In spite of everything going on in the world around him, he lived the legacy that had been handed down to him from his great-grandfather. Oh, what a blessing it is when one generation passes on to the next generation a godly legacy. Thank God. The life of faith is compared to a walk because it begins with a step. And the first step is trusting Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Trusting Jesus as your Lord and Savior. But then it's one step after another step after another step. Just saying the prayer, that's the beginning, not the ending. There are other places in the scripture where we are commanded to walk and take a step. Number one, we walk in love. We walk in love. Ephesians 5, 2 said this, and walk in love as Christ loved us, gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Walk in love. The command that Jesus gave to the disciples is love one another as I have loved you. I mean, that goes way beyond love your neighbor as yourself. Love one another as I have loved you. He gave his life for us. Number two, we walk as children of the light. As children of the light. For at one time you were in darkness, Ephesians 5, 8 says, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light of light. Walk as children of light. Number three, we walk in the Spirit. 
we walk in the Spirit. Galatians 5.16, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Verse 25 said, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Are you catching the visual from these words? Keep in step with the Spirit who lives within us. Number four, walk carefully. King James says circumspectly. Walk circumspectly. Walk carefully. Ephesians 5.15, ESV said, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Walk one step at a time. Walk in love, walk in light, walk in the spirit, walk carefully. It's a journey every day, one day at a time. We take the next step, being transformed from one stage of glory to the next stage of glory. God's presence or God's likeness being perfected in us. Noah was most famous for building an ark. But not only did he build an ark, but by the grace of God, he built a godly character in the midst of a culture that was totally ungodly. And we can do the same. And everybody said? Almost everybody said it. And everybody said? I got to keep you awake early in the morning. Genesis 6, 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. What a dark passage of scripture. But I want you to know what Noah was doing in the midst of this darkness. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. The apostle Peter writing uh, one of his letters to the church uh, about false teachers who were infiltrating the churches and teaching destructive heresies and that judgment was going to come upon them. He wrote in 2 Peter 2.5, if he, God, did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald, or the NIV said a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Now Peter's saying judgment's gonna come against these people who are teaching false doctrine. Um, just like all those people were destroyed, even though Peter was, or Noah was preaching righteousness. We have no idea exactly the message that Noah preached. Again, I wanna check out the video. But what Peter understood and most likely it was traditions that had been handed down to Jewish synagogues by the rabbis. God had given Noah a clear message, judgment is coming, but I'm providing a way of salvation for those who will turn from their wicked ways and repent and put their faith in me. 
Noah may have preached the message of repentance. It may have been laced with the message of grace, the kind of grace that he experienced. What is clear is he preached the way of righteousness to people who cared nothing about righteousness until it was too late. He preached, and no one responded except his own family. And he preached for 120 years without any converts. But he kept preaching until the day the door was closed. Does that mean I can't retire? Number three, God's ark of salvation. God's ark of salvation. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark covered inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, and its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the, the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which the breath of life under heaven Everything that is on the earth shall die. Now, in the Old Testament, when they speak of a cubit, it's believed that they were talking about the distance from the elbow to the end of your longest finger. And that usually computed about 18 inches. Using the 18 inches, that means this ark would have been 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet tall most likely a flat bottom boat because it was only built to float. It was not built to navigate. There was no keel, no rudder. I mean, no, it was just a wooden box built to hold these hundreds of animals and this family and all the food. 450 feet is a little over twice the size of the largest wooden boat that has been built, which was 212 feet long. Now, I know that today there's boats over 1,000 feet long made of metal. But let's put it in context. A boat, a football and a half long, field long, a football field long, and... There were no chainsaws. There were no lumber mills with power tools. No power planers. So Noah and his three boys, how many trees did they have to cut down? And it took... I mean, you think about it. No wonder it took over 100 years for four men to build a boat 450 feet long, three decks, and all the compartments to hold the different creatures to keep them separated um, because when sin entered the world, so did competition and the survival of the fittest amongst those critters. 
God's covenant of salvation, number four. I will establish my covenant with you. You shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you. And every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort in the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Pregnant pause. Male and female. Of the birds according to their kind, of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive and to take with you every sort of food that is eaten, stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. This is the first time we read the word covenant in the Bible. We've talked about grace, righteousness, and now covenant. And there's several covenants that are created in the Bible. This is the Noahic covenant, the covenant with Noah. A covenant is an agreement that involves obligations and benefits for both parties involved. There are some covenants in the Bible where God is the only covenant party. He makes promises to his people, this is what I'll do. But many of the covenants that God made, they came with requirements in order for God to fulfill his part of the promise. When the flood is over and the waters receded a year later, God is going to expand on the contents of this covenant. But before the flood, all that Noah had to sustain him in the huge task was the bare word of God. All that he had to sustain him in this huge task was the bare word of God. I keep coming back because I've built things. I keep coming back to, he has a blueprint. I want you to build me the boat 450 feet long. They had to chop down the trees. They had to hew the beams for the skeleton of that boat. They had to create all the planks. Again, no lumber yard they could go to and buy kiln-dried plain lumber. This was a, I mean, a hurtling project to take on. All the space that they needed for these breeding animals. And in, we're going to read in the next chapter when we get there that there was seven pairs of each of these animals. It wasn't just two or 14 of all the clean animals that came on the boat. And they had to plant and harvest food to sustain themselves while they're on this boat. 120 years. Knowing human nature, especially in the culture that was totally wicked, I wonder how much ridicule Noah and the three boys endured over that 120 years. What are you doing, Noah? I'm building a boat. Why? What's a boat? Well, God said it's going to flood, and this boat's going to save everybody who's in it. Noah, you are totally insane. Now, most theologians believe that up to this point in time, it had never rained, that God watered the earth with the mist in the morning. 
They had never seen a flood that we know of. And he's building this boat on dry ground because God gave him a word. In spite of the difficulties, in spite of the ridicule, Noah remained faithful. It said, in reverent fear, he constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Why? Because God gave him a word. God gave him a promise, or a command with a promise. Build this ark, build it this way, and your household will be saved from the flood that is going to come and create Earth 2.0 and mankind 2.0. The promise of God's word is the sustenance of his people. The promise of God's word is the sustenance of his people. God's word and his promises is what gives us life. Remember what Jesus said to Satan when Satan came to him after 40 days of fasting in the wilderness? If you be the son of God, just speak and turn those stones into bread. Now, Jesus is the one who spoke and the worlds came into existence. So speaking to a stone and say, become Dave's killer bread was not a problem. But how did Jesus respond? Matthew 4, 4, he said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. By every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do you realize how privileged we are today? We have the written word of God that's been established in heaven forever. And we are heirs to every promise that we find between the covers of this book. 2 Corinthians 1.20 said, For all the promises of God find their yes in him, that's Jesus. That is why through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. All the promises of God find their yes in him. The King James says, our yes and amen. Every promise is fulfilled in Jesus. So how much greater should our obedience be? We've received a better word. We received a better covenant. Because Jesus came and revealed the Father and paid the final payment for our salvation. Russell Kelsall Carter. I just like to say his middle name because I graduated from Kelso. He got it right when he wrote the hymn, Standing on the Promises That Cannot Fail. When the howling storms of doubt and fear assail, by the living word of God, I shall prevail, standing on the promises of God. Course said, standing, standing, standing on the promises of God, my Savior, standing, standing. I'm standing on the promises of God. What does it mean to stand on the promises of God? Roman numeral number five, the obedience of salvation. The obedience of salvation. God gave Noah a job and a promise. The promise was contingent upon the job being done. Noah, build an ark. 
Noah, build it with this kind of wood. Then put this kind of pitch to seal that wood. Make it three floors high with these different cells for the animals. And this thing on the top of it, leave that 18 inches all around the top of there so that the air can come in. Verse 22, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. If we go into the next chapter, verse 5, and Noah did all the Lord had commanded. If you read chapter 7 two more times, you're going to find those words, as the Lord commanded. Now, those of us who've been in church a long time, when we read these famous stories, we just kind of breeze over them. I've heard that. I've heard that before. I know this story. Noah built an ark. God saved him and his kids. But again, I want you to consider how monumental Noah's obedience to God's command was. Handcraft this huge vessel for hundreds of animals, birds, and reptiles from totally raw materials. No rain, no flood. All of that going on. And yet he has within him the ability to remain focused. He endured the hardship of building the boat, the hardship of being misunderstood and maligned for 120 years, rejected by people, name slandered, his intelligence insulted. But for 120 years, he remained focused on the job and the promise. You see, a righteous person rests everything on the bare word of God and obeys it. The righteous person rests everything on the bare word of God and obeys it. This comes to my mind as I'm talking, but we used to sing a chorus, a song. Doug Oldham made it famous. God said it. I believe it. That settles it for me. God said it. I believe it. That settles it for me. John 14, 15 says this, Jesus speaking to the disciples the night before he's crucified. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. John the beloved, the son of Zebedee, brother of James, the sons of thunder, he heard that. And later on, when he's writing to the churches in Asia Minor, his epistle, the first epistle. And the second chapter, he said, my little children do not sin, but know this, if you sin, we have an advocate with the Father. You got a good lawyer, Jesus Christ, who is the propitiation. And then he says in verse three, and by this, we know that we've come to know him. If we keep his commandments, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, 
truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Verse 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Keep coming back to those steps. Walk the same way that Jesus did. To walk with God means to walk in the same direction in obedience. To walk in the same direction as the Holy Spirit is walking in obedience. Even when the culture is going the opposite direction. It's like the salmon going upstream. Sometimes being a Christian in the world like we live in today is like the salmon going upstream. Don't quit till you get to the end. No one in his household were saved when the storm came, when the flood came. It brought my mind back to Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. As Jesus is winding up the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and the beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Only the ones who do the will of my Father. Obedience. He was a righteous man, blameless, because he was a man who obeyed the word that God had given to him. Years ago, many years ago, when I was a boy, not quite that long ago, but when Don Johnson, um, who's gone to be with Jesus, and my brother-in-law, Vic, and I formed, we were a trio. Um, we called ourselves the ambassadors because that was what Don's quartet was before he came to this church. Um, but we had a song that, I don't know if Jimmy Swigert wrote it, but that's the CD or no, it's the cassette tape we listened to to learn the song. That tells you how far back it was, okay? It's cassette tape we listened to. Um, but the first verse said this, On Calvary's hill, an ark has been built, costing the blood of God's Son. With its door open wide, there's safety inside. Anybody who will may get on. Second verse said, soon to one and to all will go the last call, then the door of God's mercy shall close. Opportunity then will come never again. How soon it will be, only God knows. Chorus said, come into the ark. Oh, the sky.